Mark chapter 6. Jesus has been showing His authority over all things. And even though He is sovereign over all, many still reject Him. They despise Him. And as a result, He turns to uh, the Gentiles, to the greater nations. He sends out His his Jews to people who will receive. Uh, he sends out His disciples to the people who will receive Him. And so, as we looked at last week, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right, the privilege to become His His child. And so He uses the disciples to spread that message. We've seen that, that Christ is hated because people do not know Him. They don't understand who He is and what He has done. They don't recognize Him as the Messiah. And those who do recognize Him reject Him. Today we're going to get the first indication from Mark, from Mark's Gospel, that those who follow Christ will suffer persecution just like Christ did. In fact, Paul echoes this idea in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, when he writes, All who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. Not may suffer, will suffer persecution. And so just as Christ was not understood and rejected, so you, if you are united with Christ, if you are a representative of Christ, they will also not recognize Christ through you, and they will persecute you as well. The world doesn't understand who Christ is and they don't want to submit to Him. So when we stand up and say that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that, that there is no other way, the way that you are going is wrong, when we become exclusive in our message that Jesus is the only way, we have to admit it's not the best way to win friends and influence people. But that's the message that Christ has given to us to take to the nations. And you will find people will oppose you, not because of you, not because of your personality, but because of your message. And because of the fact that you are saying that only your way is the one that works, they, they will connect your uh, message, they will connect your pride with your message. They'll say, well, you're just saying that because you've got it. You've got it all figured out. But what they don't realize is that the message of the Gospel is not destructive. But rather, it is, it is the good news. That's what it means. It is the good news that Christ came to free them from the bondage that they have from their sin. To their sin. That, that they can be freed from it, but they don't recognize that. And so, so we will be rejected. We will be persecuted. Let's read about the persecution. I think the first indication that there is going to be persecution here in Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 14. And King Herod heard of it, for his, Jesus' name, had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and that's, that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound him in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. 
Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in the tomb. Because the world does not know Christ, we'll see this in verses 14 through 16, you will see that that they will hate all those who follow Him. All those who are connected to Jesus Christ, because they don't understand Him, they will hate His followers. That's what we see in the the rest of the passage, verses 17 through 29. So let's begin with, with that first part. They don't know Christ. The reason that they hate you is because they do not know Christ, verses 14 through 16. We find that this person here that's listed for us at the beginning of the verse King Herod. Now, who is this man? Because we have other Herods in the Scripture. In fact, you remember King Herod was around when when Jesus Christ was born. And King Herod, uh, a man who's different from this one, by the way, he wanted Jesus dead. He didn't want anybody who had the possibility of coming to take over his throne. So what did he do? He had all the, the male children killed from the ages of two and under. But Jesus had already left. He had gone to Egypt by this time, so he was uh, spared from that. But, but King Herod was a wicked man. Now, this is a different King Herod that we're reading about. In fact, the King Herod at the time of Jesus' birth was Herod the Great. Herod the Great had seven sons. One of those sons, in fact, his youngest son, was this Herod that we're reading about. This is Herod Antipas. Antipas was the youngest of his seven sons. And what is it that this Herod heard of? We read in verse 14, and King Herod heard of it. That's all we have. Well, we can look back in verses 12 and 13 and we'll see what had just happened. Remember, Jesus had sent out the disciples and this is what happens in verse 12. They went out and preached that men should repent and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. The fact that the the disciples were spreading the gospel was what had now reached to King Herod. But it wasn't that the the fact that they had gained a following or that they had done some mighty works. Notice what uh, what he was finding out about. 
Verse 14, And King Herod heard of it, for his, Jesus' name, had become well known. So it wasn't, he doesn't say anything about the disciples. He doesn't connect what's going on with the disciples necessarily. He connects it back to his, Jesus' name. And something was going on with this man, Jesus. And so people were saying all these things about who Jesus was. And that's why I say that they don't know who Jesus is. They don't recognize who Jesus Christ is. There's three three uh, people that they think Jesus Christ is. First, John the Baptist. They think that John the Baptist has risen from the dead. Verse 14 says, And the people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, John was not known to have done any miracle, miracles while he was alive. But the fact that, that a person could rise from the dead, the only way that these miracles could happen, Herod and others were saying, the only reason that this could happen is if someone had risen from the dead. And you can just imagine the torture that Herod had put himself through because he had killed John the Baptist. Right? He, he, was, he didn't really want to as you... you you learned as we read through this, right? He, he was he was not uh, in favor of him dying, but he had to because of the crowd and because of the oath that he made. He felt he had to. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. But but he probably had been torturing himself about this beheading, and so as a result, we see in verse twenty that Herod was afraid of John while he was alive, and so he thought that after he killed him, something bad was going to happen. Probably some sort of superstitious idea that, that his ghost would come and haunt me. And now he is. Okay, this, this ghost has come back in the person of, when he doesn't know, Jesus Christ, and he's haunted me. So first, John the Baptist. Secondly, other people were saying that this was Elijah, verse 15. Others were saying he, he is Elijah, it says there. The Jews recognized that Elijah would precede the promised Messiah, that before the Messiah would come, Elijah would come. And so he would come in great power. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 tells us about that. That he would come to announce the coming of the Messiah. And so other people were saying, no, this is not John the Baptist risen from the dead. That doesn't make sense. It's got to be Elijah because he had been promised in the Old Testament to come. And he was going to do some, some, some great works. But it was not Elijah, in fact. Others were saying, the second part of verse 15, others were saying he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. People thought that the prophetic line had now been reinstated. You remember that between the time of Malachi, the last prophet, okay, we call him a minor prophet, but only because his book is shorter than the others, Malachi, the minor prophet, and Jesus Christ, you know how many years there were between those two prophets? There were about 400 years. And so all these people during that time had been waiting, these Jews, where is the prophet? Where is the Messiah? He's supposed to be coming. Where is he? And now, all of a sudden, someone comes on the scene doing these great works and they say, well, it has to be a prophet. It's continuing the prophetic line. The same three confessions take place uh, or are given to us when Jesus asks Peter, turn over to chapter 8. You remember this story when Jesus asks Peter, who do people say that I am? 
And Peter Peter voices these very three uh, groups of people or these very uh, three uh, sections of people. Verse uh, Matthew chapter eight, verse twenty-seven. Jesus went. I'm sorry, Mark chapter eight, verse twenty-seven. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, "Who do people say that I am?" And they told him, saying, "John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets." And he continued by questioning them, "But who do you say that I am?" Peter answered and said to him, "You are the Christ." And he warned them not to tell. Or he warned them to tell no one about him. People were still trying to figure out who Jesus was. His identity was not fully revealed until later on in his ministry, when he comes out and explicitly tells people who he was. But who does Herod think that Jesus is? Okay, there's these three categories of people: John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Who does Herod think? Verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, this is the same it from verse 14. The 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 name of Jesus had been spreading, but when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I have beheaded, has risen. Herod thought that it was John the Baptist. Now, we have to ask ourselves, did people believe in ghosts so much so that they would think that a person could, uh, or a ghost could perform these types of acts? Well, in fact, they did. Look at chapter uh, 6, the end of this chapter, verse 47. Even the disciples themselves had this idea that, that ghosts could come and and even be seen in some cases because this is what they think about when this incident takes place. Chapter 6, verse 47. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land, that is Jesus. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost. And cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. So yes, people did believe in ghosts. I'm not exactly sure where they got that sort of idea, but even even the, the disciples had that sort of, um, uh, of mindset when they saw something that was really unheard of. That someone could be actually walking in the middle of a stormy See, so Herod certainly could could think this that that John the Baptist must have risen from the dead or something's happened. It's either a ghost or or his his resurrected body is here and is now coming to haunt me, because he himself had done this to John the Baptist and now his his conscious conscience was being troubled. Kind of a strange conclusion to come to, but that's in fact what what he thought. So they don't understand who Jesus is. And because of that, now the rest of the, the uh, passage here shows us because they don't understand Him, they will hate those who follow Him. They will hate those who follow Jesus Christ. Verses 17 through 29. Now this entire passage is a parenthetical statement. It's something that has already taken place. So Mark is working through a chronological history of what's going on. He gets to this spot and he says, Okay, Herod, Herod's uh, heard of it, and he thinks it's John the Baptist. Now, let me take you back to what happened before. Okay, so he, he goes back in, in the, the history of time, and he shows that 
that this is an event that has already taken place. And I think the purpose of recording it here, as I said, is to to show that, that those who follow after Jesus will also be rejected with Him. Now we're going to see this, this sub-theme unfold as we go through more and more of this book. We'll see that not, it's not only John the Baptist, but other people will suffer for Him. In fact, Jesus says later on that if you're going to follow Me, then you can expect to have some sort of, of persecution or you, you will understand that they will hate you because of me. Turn over to John chapter 15. We'll see this most clearly, I think, here. John chapter 15. Jesus is speaking here, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus says, the reason that they hated you is because they already hated me. Okay, don't take it personally. It's not your fault that they hate you. Now, we can do things to cause the world to hate us, by the way. So don't just we shouldn't just try to go out there and get people to hate us so then we can say, Well it's all they they just hate Jesus Christ. But the point is is that when we are speaking the message of the gospel as it's meant to be spoken, that it is a, an exclusive message that no one else can come to God apart from Jesus Christ, then the world will hate us. They will persecute us in some way. Whether that be a snubbing of us, whether that be a, a, a not including us in, in certain activities, it could be physical torture. You could die as a result of your relationship to Christ. But Christ says, they hate you because they already hated me. Let's look at John's imprisonment in verses 17 through 20. We see that John was imprisoned. He was imprisoned, I think, for two reasons. One was, we could say, his own fault, for his own conviction. Verses 17 and 18. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So the first reason John was imprisoned was for his own conviction. Now what we need to understand here is, is what's going on. Herod, I said, was one of seven uh, sons of Herod the Great. And, and the way it worked was one of uh, Herod's oldest sons, Aristarchus, uh, Aristobulus had a daughter. His daughter's name was Herodias. Now, Herodias was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. Herodias uh, married... This is, the, this is the granddaughter of Herod the, Great, Herod the Great. She married Philip, one of the younger brothers. So, she married her uncle, Philip. And Philip fall, fell out of graces with his father... Uh, his father, obviously all the sons are competing to see who's going to be the king, the successor to the throne. 
couple of them were executed because they tried to poison Herod the Great so that they could take the throne for themselves. Um, Philip fell out of graces later on in life, and Herodias wanted power. I mean, she was a female, so she couldn't be the king herself, but she could be connected to the king. And that's what she wanted. So that's why she married Herodias in the first place. Because her father fell out of grace with, with, uh, her, with her grandfather. But Herod, the problem was is that Herod was already married to another woman. So Herod was married to another woman. His brother Philip was married to his niece, Herodias. And Herod came to love Herodias. He came to, to, to be infatuated with her. And so he thought, you know what? Why don't we make this happen? Um, after a few visits, he decided, I'm going to divorce my wife and so that she knows that I'm serious about this. And this news becomes public. It ends up on the 11 o'clock news, I'm sure. That's where John the Baptist heard about it. And so John the Baptist comes and he starts preaching against what Herod is doing. He's like, no, this is wrong for a person to marry their brother's wife. That is wrong. How could he do that? I mean, he's, he's, he's breaking up two covenants that have been made before God. Herod's with his wife and his brother Philip's with his niece, Herodias. But he, but he did it anyway. Now, Herod Antipas it tells us that he, he, he wanted to hear from John the Baptist. So, so pro, it probably started out that John the Baptist had been preaching in a public place probably, and some of the, the people who were listening went and told Herod. It probably wasn't that John was so close to Herod that he just told it to, him, to, to his face. But I, it, I do think he did, he did that later on in life because... Herod calls for him, verse 20, for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed. But he used to enjoy listening to him. So Herod apparently would bring him before himself and say, all right, John, tell me some more about this. Okay, well, What do you got to say for yourself? Because you're gaining this huge following. I want to know what, is, what exactly is going on. And perhaps John used that opportunity to say, Herod, what you're doing right now, that you're causing these two divorces, this is not right. And so John was taken and put into prison as a result of speaking out against Herod. I think the, the, the second reason that he was in prison, not only for his own conviction, but also for his own protection, and I, and I say protection because who was trying to kill John the Baptist? Look at verse 19. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not do so. And then there's this little, uh, I think, parenthetical statement for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous, holy man. And then this. This is the reason that she could not put him to death. End of verse 19. comes to this part. Because he kept him safe. Herod kept John the Baptist safe in prison. So he sent him to a place where Herodias could not get to him. So John was put in a place where he could not be killed. But there came a strategic day, verse 21 says. A strategic day came when Herodias had her chance, her opportunity to, to put away John the Baptist for good. And so what we see in verses 20, 21 through 29 is Herod's motive. 
First, we, we see the, the unwise promise in verses 21 through 23. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet of his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. Now we'll talk about this, what this strategic day means and who it uh, and what it exactly means. I think it, it's primarily a strategic day for Herodias to get what she wants, but we'll see also that it's a strategic day for Herod in the life uh, in his spiritual life, really. I mean, this is quite a party if you think about it. Verse 21, he gave a banquet for his lords, military commanders, and leading men of Galilee. This would be the top officials in, in the land. And they're all here having this party when, uh, when out comes Salome, Herodias' daughter. Now, Herodias had been married to Philip and, be, Philip, and between them, they had this daughter, Salome. Salome came out and did this dance. And I'm guessing she wasn't doing a waltz like you'd see on the Lawrence Welk show. Uh, I'm thinking this is a highly suggestive da- dance. And the reason that I think that is because of who is there. What gender are these people, do you think? They're men. And they're probably drunk out of their minds. And so I don't think that they're looking for some uh, you know, three-step three box step or whatever it is. They're looking for some sort of suggestive dance. And that's why they're pleased at the end of it because uh, she is uh, contorting her body in such a way to, to please these men. And so as a result, Herod sees that all these people are pleased. He's pleased himself. And so he wants to offer something to her and please his guests to show them that, yes, this was a great time for all of us. And so he gives this foolish promise. And he says, you can have anything you want. Choose it. I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. Now, Herod was not the king at this time. If you remember, Herod the Great basically gave his kingdom to three, uh, four people. They call, In fact, Herod Antipas is called Herod the Tetrarch, meaning uh, the fourth ruler, four ruler, one of four rulers. And so that's how Herod the Great had divided his kingdom. Herod was only one of many, so he wasn't really the king. People called him the king uh, just because there, there could be a time in his life when he would end up being that. So really when he says half my kingdom, it's not really a kingdom, but, but you get the idea. You can have whatever you want. And back comes the bold request in verses 24 and 25. And she went out, Salome, she went out said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in, hurried to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Salome doesn't know what to ask for, so she goes and asks her conniving mother, and her mother knows exactly what to ask for. Perhaps she had it planned out. Perhaps she sent her daughter out to do this suggestive dance so that the drunk King Herod would would offer something like this. And now comes the foolish response in verses 26 through 29. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. 
When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, in case you're wondering whether Herod is almost persuaded here, okay, he, he's at the point where I feel really sorry about what I'm doing, but I have to do it. The answer is made clear in Luke chapter 23, verses 7 through 12, when we see that Herod takes part in the death of Jesus Christ, doesn't he? He is he is a a piece of the puzzle that that causes Jesus to go to the cross. And so Herod was not sincere. This sorrow that he had did not lead to repentance. But but notice that he was very sorry. Verse 26, And although the king was very sorry, shows that he was deeply moved, that, that he wanted, he did not want this to happen. Now, we could say, well, was he forced? To, was he forced to do this because he made the oath? Why, I mean, why not just bro- break the oath? Believe me, Herod was not concerned about his on- honesty there or his integrity. The only thing that he was concerned about is pleasing his guests. Look what it says, verse twenty-six. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. He had the opportunity refuse her but he was unwilling see it shows that he was active in his in his uh, foolish decision he, his hands weren't tied oh i have to i have to chop off john the baptist's head no he was unwilling to because he chose uh he was he chose not to refuse her <clears throat> john's body is taken by john's disciple in verse 29 <clears throat> john's disciple they they take his body so that they can give it a proper burial and this foreshadows, I think, what Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea does for Jesus Christ. That he takes his body and gives him a proper burial. And I think in many ways what this does is it shows that John the Baptist was not only a forerunner to Jesus in his ministry, but also in his death. That John came to proclaim a message about Jesus. He, he, he uh, lived his life a certain way that honored the King who would come, Jesus Christ, and then he died prematurely, just like Jesus would. And what I think we ought to learn, one of the things that we ought to learn from this passage is really a, a message that Herod gives for us. And that is that passive acceptance is active rejection. Passive acceptance is active rejection. Suppose I have a severe pain in my mouth and I go to my dentist and he tells me that I have an infection in my gums. And he tells me that the reason that it's there is because I eat way too much ice cream. I can't argue with that. So he tells me, here's what you need to do to get rid of this infection and to prevent further ones. First, you need to take this antibiotic. Okay? You have to take it for this many days and then you can't eat any more ice cream. Okay? You, have to, you have to get off the ice cream. And I'm listening to him, and I'm accepting what he has to say. Yes, you know what you're saying. I I recognize that you're in a position of authority over me, and I will accept that. So I walk out from there. I begin taking the antibiotics. I begin the the path down uh, uh, refusal of ice cream, which has thrown me into depression and all sorts of other things. But, But after a while, I can't keep up with it. And I have to go back to my ice cream and I I don't like taking the antibiotics. So he tells me before I leave, you know, just come back if you ever have a problem. And I come back to him when I have the problem. 
And he says, okay, so so what did you do exactly? Tell me exactly what did you, did you take the pills that I told you to take? Did you stop eating the ice cream? Did you stop the sweets? And I said, well, Doc, I mean, I left the office and I really like what you had to say, but I'm sad to say that I, I, I ate the ice cream and I stopped taking the pills and, and in fact, I haven't even been brushing lately. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I, I really am. But I had to do it. What would my dentist say to me? You moron! What are you doing? You, you know the remedy. And I could say, wait wait a second. I, I've accepted what you said. Didn't you see when I was in here before? I accepted what you had to say. And I even did some of the things you told me. Remember I stopped eating ice cream for a while? I took those antibiotic pills. And he would say, no, you've got to take the whole thing. Okay. You see... Passive acceptance is active rejection. I have just completely rejected everything that he has had to say. Or we can even say that partial acceptance is no acceptance at all. Rather, it's denial. Saying, no, dentist, you don't know what's best for me. I'm going to do what's best for me. I'll choose, not you. You may know people like this who seem to enjoy hearing what God says they may have an excuse why they haven't submitted to Him like they should. They can even enjoy being under the hearing of God's Word, just like Herod is. He comes and it says that he enjoyed listening to Him. And you could even be sorrowful when things go wrong, like Herod is. And it even tells us in verse 20 that Herod was perplexed. He was working through these things in his mind, and yet... All the while, while, while they say they love God, while they say they, they, are, they are actively serving Him and they're, they're doing things, all they're doing is just partially accepting Him. And like Herod, what they've actually done is rejected them, rejected Him. Now, we could argue that Herod Antipas was not nearly as bad as, as his father. I mean, what Herod was doing, he, he seems to have done just in passivity that he didn't really go out and actively pursue John's death. He didn't go out and actively pursue the death of Jesus Christ. He kind of just stood around, waited for things to happen. But what did his dad do? He was very active. He wanted to make sure that Jesus was gone and off the scene. So we could argue that, that Herod Antipas really wasn't like his father in that way. But partial acceptance is passive rejection, which is active denial. And if you don't fully embrace Christ, you have already denied Him. If you don't fully embrace Him, you are denying Him. And there will come a day, a strategic day, as Mark writes, when there's a fork in the road, and there's a time to make a choice. And if you have been passively or partially accepting God all this time, there will come a day when you have to make a choice. Which way are you going to go? You don't have, there's no t- more time for passivity. Now there's time to take action. You have to make a choice. And so I would encourage you to make that choice now, as Joshua says in Joshua chapter 24, verse 14 and 15. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served behind, beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. 
If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose yourself today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Perhaps you've already made that choice. Perhaps you're ready when that crossroads comes, when that strategic day comes and you have to make a choice. You're already ready because you've already accepted Jesus Christ. Well, I would ask you, are you willing to suffer for Him? Do you recognize what it means that the only way you can stand up under persecution is if you're deeply rooted in the right kind of soil? Then when the storm comes, and the sun beats down in life, you will not only survive in those times, but you will grow. But if your if your heart is planted in a rocky soil like it was with Herod, when the sun comes out, when that strategic day comes, and you have to choose between God and pleasing your friends or pleasing yourself, you will not choose God. So here's your responsibility if you have trusted Christ. Allow those roots to take, uh, to take deep root. And you know how you do that? You do it by disciplining yourself in the, in the Word of God. By getting to know God more through His Word. The fundamentals of the faith. The, the fundamentals of the faith, that is, Scripture intake and, and speaking to God, commitment to the local church, commitment to, to serving other believers. That's how you take deep root in the spiritual life. And when you do that, you will be ready when suffering comes. You will be ready when people pour down persecution on you because of Jesus Christ. But if not, if you are passively following Him now, if you are partially accepting Him now, there is a good chance that you will actively reject Him when the strategic day comes. Who is it that you're going to stand with? On what foundation are you going to stand? What type of soil is your heart? Let's ask God's help to plant this truth deep in our hearts and to be committed even more to following Him than we are now. Lord, we thank You for John the Baptist and his, his example for us. And we are amazed at how you worked through his life and even affected a king such as Herod uh, to the point where he was sorrowful for what he had done. But we know that not all sorrow leads to repentance. And so for him, he, unless he accepted his, uh, Christ later on in life, which we, we do not know about, he, he made the wrong choice. And we don't want to be counted in His number. We want to be counted with Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we want to stand up for Him. At times it's hard. And we don't know how we're going to get through. How how we're going to make it. How we're going to stand up when people make fun of us or, or reject us because of our message and because of our, our commitment to the church and our commitment to You. We don't know what we're going to do. But we do know that You have called us to something greater 
than to live for the passing pleasures of sin and the the the, the fleeting nature of the praise of people. And we want to live for something that lasts far beyond that, and that is for Your glory that will last for all eternity. And so we pray that You'd help us as we consider this truth and and the fact that sometimes we are prone to wander and we need to get back on track spiritually. We need to be more committed to You than we are. Certainly, we always can uh, improve in that area. So we pray that You'd give us the commitment to do that and the ability to trust in You in that, not to look to ourselves, but to look to Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has provided the means for us to come to You and to stay near You. Help us to hate our sin as You hate it and to put it away so that we can be more unified as a body, that we could be growing more into the image of Jesus Christ and with our lives becoming more and more glorifying to You. That is our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.